Luke chapter 3, we're going to be moving through uh, verses 1 through 6. Now, I've got to be honest with you this morning that if we make it through this entire section of Scripture, you'll chalk it up, please, to a Christmas miracle. I thought that was a lot funnier when I rehearsed it in my head. Let's try that again. If we make it to verse 6, it'll be a Christmas miracle. No, that's just fake. Come on now. Jeez Louise. Tough crowd. We live at a, a difficult time. We live at a strange time. I've, I've been thinking about this lately. Um, ever since COVID hit, kind of ruminating on the idea of, it, is it getting worse? It's strange. It seems that... Um, when we grow up, as we grow up, I'm 55, um, parents would always say it's, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. But maybe it's just that we know more about it. Maybe we hear more about things in the news. What kind of world produces a teenager stabbing another teenager to death in Florida? A story I read about this week. Over a hundred times. What kind of world produces that kind of person? Meeting with a pastor, a local pastor, went on vacation, came back, his house had been broken into. Things that he loved, things that he had collected, taken, stolen, into the wind, as far as he knows. It doesn't take very long when you're on the internet or when you're listening to the news to find out about the immorality in government or the immorality down the road. What kind of world produces this kind of stuff? The answer would be, and you know it, a fallen world. But if I could extend that idea a little further, not just a fallen world, a world in which Christ came into. That's the amazing part. You know, I find myself mourning over the condition of people. Not long I mourn my own condition. Why don't I trust the way I should? Why don't I live the way I aspire? And at the end of the thoughts, when they're good, they find their way back to Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you came into this world to rescue this world. People like me. People like the pastor friend I know. People like even the guy who stabbed that person, that teenager. See, this is the thing about it. We live in this spectrum in which you can... See and read about evil, deep and abiding evil, and you can see and read about incredible grace. That's the beauty, particularly this time of year, that we can linger on that. Hope that encourages you. The passage that we're going to look at today is, uh, I've just got to tell you, you're going to need a scorecard. Uh, We're going to be walking through people that maybe you've never heard about and certainly thinking about things you've never thought about. But it's important because we've arrived at the point of the story in which Theophilus at some point, we've met him in chapter 1 verse 4, has been asking about the life of Christ. He had grown up in a family, as far as we know, he'd been catechized. That's the idea of that he'd been taught. We know that from verse 5 of chapter 1. He'd been taught about Christ. After the resurrection of Christ, he hears the stories and he begins to ask, has anybody written this down? And so you look for 
places like John and and Matthew and, and Mark, Mark being the first, and different things were written down. But Theophilus in his questioning, we don't know, I'm presuming because of the nature of the letter that is then written to him, he must have been asking, can we get from the beginning to the end on this? I mean, Mark starts at the beginning of the story of John the Baptist. Uh, John starts at before time began. Uh, Matthew starts at the beginning that was curious for the Jewish mind. Luke begins with the story of Jesus that stretches out most likely chronologically. The others jump around. Theophilus is asked to have this produced. And then Luke puts on his best imitation of a an investigative reporter. And that's what you have in front of you. He's moving through all the details of Luke's life, or excuse me, of the life of Christ and his coming. And so far we've been seeing things like Jesus and Gabriel's announcement of the birth of John the Baptist in 1, 5 through 25. Then the announcement related to Jesus's birth in chapter 1, 26 through 80. Then we see the details surrounding his specific birth in chapter 2, 1 through 20. We've gone through this. The name and circumcision, naming and circumcision of Christ at eight days at 221. Notice how this whole thing is, is building. And it's written for a guy who's got questions, who wants assurances, maybe like you. Keeps going there. Presentation of Christ at 40 days in the temple. We talked about the other week. Then the only recorded event in the childhood of Christ that we have in any of the Gospels. We looked at that last week in chapter PhDs are hanging. Today we come into the Luke is parachuting in to different needed subject matter. We have the birth of Christ. We have eight days. Then we have the presentation at 40 days. Then we have 12 years. The next time we see Christ will be 18 years later to when he's 30 years old. But before that, Luke has to fill in a little bit more about it. A little bit more about the subject. You see, Luke is building this overall thought, the idea that Jesus is ordinary enough to relate to you, yet supremely unique. Supremely unique so that he can rescue you. That's the idea. Jesus didn't just appear, but he's incredibly ordinary enough. And that's where we let off in this passage. Matter of fact, in verse 52 of chapter 2, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is ordinary enough to relate to you, yet supremely unique enough so that he can rescue you. But before he gets to that, you would remember that John the Baptist came first. He's the forerunner. He's the announcer. And so this morning, the idea of this message is the idea of, and so it begins. And so it begins. We fast forward to the life of John the Baptist. And if we want to understand the story of Christ, we want to understand the story of what it was like when John the Baptist came into this world. We've got to do the work of constructing what was the culture like? What were the leaders like? What were the families of the leaders like? What are the decisions that were being made? What you're going to find out this morning is their world was just as fallen as our world. You might know more about what's going on, but their world was just as evil, just as wicked, just as needy. So if we find our way over to Luke chapter 3, 1 through 6, let's walk through that. We'll begin to read there in that verse number 1. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... 
Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Triconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So as we begin to get into this transitionary time, I'd like to ask this question. What was the world like that John the Baptist lived in? What was this time like? I think this is important. Because it frames not only our understanding of the text and the rest of the Gospel of Luke, it also gives us hope. God's not interested in coming into a sterile world. Jesus didn't play it easy by coming into a time in which it was easier than now. Evil was expressed differently, but nevertheless it was expressed. You have phones and computers and we have the news. Because we can know more about what's going on doesn't mean it was any more evil or difficult in Christ's day. Don't let anyone tell you that. So what was this world that John the Baptist arrives in? And particularly, look at verses 1 and 2, the idea of when he arrived. When he arrived. This is before Jesus turns to be 30 years old. So the world of John the Baptist, when he arrived, verses 1 and 2. You'll notice the first thing that's said in that passage. It's when he arrived in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, you remember chapter 2, verse 1, Caesar Augustus, Gaius Caesar. We talked about him. He's passed off the scene. One of the things about this time that's intriguing, though, is that Caesar Tiberius was adopted into the family of Caesar Augustus. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the Roman Senate didn't want Caesar Augustus to continue on and to create a line of emperors, a line of leaders, because the Senate, they wanted to hold the power. Well, Caesar Augustus got wind of this, and Tiberius was adopted. He was his son-in-law, was adopted into his family, and in 11 AD, Tiberius was made co-regent or co-emperor with Caesar Augustus. Now, why is that? Because Caesar Augustus knew that if I give him all of the powers of Caesar and then I pass on, there's nothing the Senate's going to do to pull that power back from him. And my appointed person will be on the throne because I want my grandson to serve. Now, you might say, well, Dan, that's very interesting. This sounds like a PBS special. Thank you very much. It begins to give us a a sneak peek into the world. When you look around at the news and you see people that are on the take, governors and senators and congressmen, you go, how could people do stuff like that? Jesus came into a world like that. John the Baptist entered the scene on those types of moments. 
There was conniving at the highest level. There was people being paid off. And this is the kind of world he stepped into. Which is interesting about this, though, when we see of Tiberius Caesar, I said that he, at 11 AD, became co-regent. A little note here, very important to establish the dating when you start going through one of the Gospels, because the Passovers land at certain dates. And so I think that when he says the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, I think he's starting when he became the co-regent. You see, Tiberius came into power in 14 AD and kept power until 37 AD. But if we start at 14 years of his reign beginning, we get off when it comes to the numbers. And so I think he started at 11 AD. And why do I say that? It's because Jesus, when he was having a conversation in John 2.20 with the Jews, they said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And we know that the temple was started to be built at 27 BC. Therefore, if you do the math, you arrive at 26 AD for the start of the ministry of Christ based on when the temple was done. And so therefore, 11 AD makes the most sense in reference to the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. I've told you this morning, you're going to need a scorecard for this. You can listen later, you can write this stuff down, but it's important. The other thing that is interesting about this passage, and specifically the time when he arrived, notice the second person that is listed here, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judah. That's really interesting. If you'll notice in verse 1, in general, it seems to be speaking about the political context of the time. Verse 2 gets into the religious context with Annas and Caiaphas, which we'll be talking about. But mentioning Pontius Pilate is interesting because, if you'll notice, the rest of the names in this list are the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had 13 sons. And there's a word here that's used, if you'll notice, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. Philip, tetriarch of the region of Iteria and Triconitus. Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene. What does that mean, tetriarch? Well, specifically, that idea is that a tetra means four, for those of you who are into the Greek language, and archis refers to rulers or leaders. So this idea that the land would have been broken down into four different sections, one land, but Herod the Great... When he passed away, he decided to have the land broken down, four sons rule over four specific areas because he knew it would be very, very difficult for one of them to rule. So he broke it down in specific areas. He divided power among four individuals or rulers, and that's what Tetrarch means. In other words, there were governors. Now, if you'll look, the slide back, please, if you could just show the general slide. There we go. You'll notice, and I apologize for anybody who can't see this, and particularly people who are watching online, but if you notice, these are the four regions. Here, 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 and up in this area. But what's interesting about this is, if you notice in the text, we only have three sons and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was not one of the sons of Herod the Great. Why would Luke include this in? Luke includes this in, and we're going to leave this on the screen so you can see. Luke includes this in because to Theophilus, he would have remembered these days. 
Now, you and I wouldn't remember. That's why we need to understand. There was a lot of turmoil going on during the time in which Herod passed. As a matter of fact, Herod passed most likely in Jericho from what we know. He was dying a terrible death. He was 72 years old. And he'd been gone through an awful lot. We don't know exactly what he had, but they said he could have had cancer. Certainly had one of the worst cases of hemorrhoids that a ruler ever had. He wasn't able to eat well. He most likely had tumors in his throat and he was going fast. One of the things, charges, he's back and forth to Rome. Herod looked terrible. It got so bad that Herod actually had to go to Rome at one point. And Antipur was seeking to have his father deposed. You see, the Romans were the power behind Herod the Great. He was serving at their pleasure, making sure everything went smoothly. Antipur, his son, again in the mid-30s, didn't want this. Long story short, Antipur was imprisoned in the palace in which Herod was residing in that area in Jericho. And he was spending time there, his son in prison. He was dying in a room down the hall. And at one point, Herod cried out as he was trying to peel back an apple. He cried out because of the pain in his body. And it was so bad that he actually tried to stab himself with the knife that he was using to peel the apple. Antipur, who was in the jail cell, heard the screams, people rushing around. He thought, my father's dead. He tried to bribe the guard who was watching his cell, promising him riches if he would let him out of his cell. The guard wisely said, I'm not doing that. We know Herod the Great, not a good guy. He runs to where Herod had been screaming, finds out he's still alive, and tells Herod what his son was planning, that his son wanted to let get out, and he was planning to take over. Herod the Great had his son killed. Five days later, after Herod had adjusted his will, Herod the Great dies. Herod had intended his sons to rule these areas, but his oldest son had betrayed him. But now we have other sons. For example, Herod Antipas, 17, Philip, 16, Licinius, we don't know his age, Archelaus, or Archelaus, excuse me, 19 years of age. Archelaus was put in charge of this region right here. This was the most pronounced region. This region here was where Jerusalem was. This was the place in which had the most money. This was the affluent area. And Archelaus, after his father passed away, he waited the presided seven days of mourning. And then what he did is he set up a, a uh, throne right outside of the temple. It was golden. And he went up on top of this. Now remember, he's got to wait for the Romans to install him as the king, as the tetriarch of this area, just like the brothers have to wait for their other assignments. Herod had made the plan, but Rome has to approve. So he sets up this throne, and then he promises the people that he'll be a more gentle ruler than he had, than his father had been. And that is met with cheers. That is met with fanfare. And then Archelaus makes a mistake. He says, I'm not going to be like my father. And they said, effectively, prove it. They asked for two things. Set the prisoners free that Herod the Great put into prison and lower our taxes. Archelaus 
thought that'd be a great idea. Set me off and running when it comes to my kingship. But as soon as he did that, they started asking for more. Do this, do this, do this. Archelaus said, no, I'm not going to do this. The Jews began to riot. It was near Passover. So he sent a group of soldiers to settle people down. It was a, a riot. Kind of like you've seen in the United States over the last few years. He sends people in, soldiers, Roman soldiers. Some soldiers are killed. Now he's got a massive problem. He cannot allow this to continue because the Roman Empire will never allow him to rule in that area if he can't maintain peace. So he sends more soldiers, sends mounted soldiers. 3,000 Jews are killed. He puts it down. But now all of a sudden, he's got problems. And for next, the next 10 years, he can never get control of the region. He did rule for 10 years. But by the time he's off the scene, he's banished to Gaul, which is today modern France. Rome gets to the place that they say, there's no way we can allow somebody who's from the region to rule the region. What we need is somebody who's from our side of the streets. We need a Roman. And so they put in three different men and finally Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate begins his rule there as prefect in Judah from 26 to 36 AD. So what we see is from this passage, when he mentions after Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, we know that we're around 26 AD. And if the ministry of Christ starts in 26 AD, we know that this region here is a powder keg. It's a powder keg because not only the fact that Rome has now stepped in and put its own man on the throne, while the sons of Herod could rule these other areas, Rome is ruling here. Why is that a big deal? That tells you the level of frustration that people had. That shows you the level of brutality that could have been there. That shows you where the Roman who's stuck in Judah, around Jewish people who have these weird beliefs, there was tension in the air. And more than that, Tiberius, by this time, by 26 AD, he'd been given to fits of rage and madness. And by this time, he was on the island of Capri for 10 years living as a recluse. So everybody in this area is walking on eggshells because he was getting reports from the land of who was listening and who wasn't listening. And Tiberius was fragile enough that if you were a ruler... If you were somebody like Pontius Pilate, you had to be careful how you acted because Tiberius could get a bad report. Some bad report could be snuck in at any time and you could find your head rolling soon. Matter of fact, if you turn over to John chapter 19, 12 through 16, Pontius Pilate was ruling during this time. You'll notice the interplay between the Jewish people and Pilate during Jesus's crucifixion that speaks to this environment speaks to this background. This is the world that John the Baptist came into. But by the time Jesus has done his ministry toward the end, we see the hold that the religious leaders have on Pilate and the fear that is in Pilate's mind when it comes to messing up in Judea. In 19 of John, verses 12, it said, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, speaking about Christ. 
But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. See, they said Jesus is making himself king. Why did they bring up Caesar's name? Tiberius' name. Because they knew. Pontius Pilate, you're on thin ice. You're walking on eggshells. If you let Jesus go, he's saying that he's the king. You must oppose Caesar. Matter of fact, if you notice there, look down there, verse 15, after he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about that. We have no king by Caesar. It's a double-edged blade. Number one, how can the people of Israel say that they will honor as king Caesar, the God-man of paganism, and reject Christ? It's an amazing thing. They've gone that far. They're so desperate to have Jesus exterminated. They embrace a pagan king. No, well, that's on that side of the blade. The other side of the blade is the amazing thing. As soon as Pilate heard that, he washes his hands. Why? Because he knows all of the trouble that went into ruling this area. He knows he's on a short leaf. If Tiberius finds out that he is allowing anybody to claim kingship, even if he doesn't take it seriously, and he doesn't put that man down, Pilate will be put down. So when we read this in this passage, this idea that Tiberius, and then he mentions Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, when Theophilus hears that, he shakes. When you hear that, no big deal. What you need to realize is the world that John the Baptist was stepping in was a powder keg. Now we get to the other sons. It says there, Herod being tetriarch of Galilee. Well, that's interesting. That's Herod Antipas. You might want to write that in your notes or maybe even in your Bible. This is not Herod the Great. This is the son of Herod. And as we said previously, he was 17 years old when he got this area. In the area that he took over was right in here, Galilee and Perea. Perea is not mentioned in this passage, most likely, because it's across the Jordan River and not very significant. We'll go to that next slide next. Annas and Caiaphas is next. You can go back one slide. There we go. Galilee and Perea. So that's the area he has. What is he like? It's important to understand who he is and what he is like. Well, two specific uh, times or events help us to understand. One is in the Bible, one's not in the Bible. The first is the building of a city by the name of Tiberius. Matter of fact, it's mentioned. Uh, he built a city starting in 20 A.D., Again, this is about six years before the passage that's laying before us. It's on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, when he built this, it was on a trade route. There was also hot springs that were known to be there. He wanted to create a center. Matter of fact, his capital in Galilee. He named it Tiberius to honor the Caesar. But what's interesting about this area is the Jews told him he cannot build the city on this area. Why? Because there were graves there. And because when there's graves, anybody who occupied the land, they would be considered unclean. 
That didn't dissuade Herod at all from going forward with his plan, Herod Antipas. He built the city. No one would come. No Jewish people would come. It got so bad because he wanted to be a capital. He built buildings. He built homes. And he was giving them away for free. He had people coming in from around the region, Greeks, Gentiles coming in. No Jew would live there. What that shows you is that Herod Antipas thought very little of the Jewish belief system. Matter of fact, he didn't care at all for it. He thought it was superstitious and he would run it over if necessary. Matter of fact, not until the second century did Jews start to move into Tiberias and then it became a hub of Jewish learning and teachers would live there, but they had to take the bodies out from under the ground and take them to another location. There was a rabbi that did that in the second century. But that gives us an insight into the fact that he didn't care at all for religious things. Kind of like maybe your neighbors or coworkers, people that don't care at all about what you believe. What you experience in your world is different, but not different categorically. The second event that you know of that Herod Antipas was involved in was recorded in Mark six seventeen through 29. Mark, this is during the winter of 29 AD. This is toward the the latter part of the ministry of Christ. He's got about another year left. And you'll notice Macarius right down here is where Herod Antipas was staying for the winter. And Mark chapter 6 records an incident in which he has John the Baptist seized. This is at the end of his ministry. And we're going to talk about that the ministry that John had, the message that he had, was calling people to repentance. And he'd done that. Matter of fact, in the passage, it says that John was telling people and saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see, Philip, his younger brother, had married somebody, Herodias, and she divorced him to go with Herod Antipas, his brother. Intrigue, immorality, it's all there. Herod was rebuked by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was moving through the wilderness area, this area down through here and up. All through this area, and he was taught his brothers and listen, verse ask me out. She asks fourth area. What does she ask for? She asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Think about that. You could ask for whatever you want. But Herodias is so embittered. How dare he call me a whore? So that's exactly what happens. Head on a platter, verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, his guests did not want to break his word to her and immediately sent for an executioner with orders to bring John's head. That all happened in this area right down here, in that rule of Perea. Now you might say, well, Dan, this is really interesting stuff. Exactly how does this relate to me? I think you need to know this. I think you know this historical background. This is the world in which John was entering. It was a world in which if you said the wrong thing, it could cost you. For him, it cost him his head. It could cost you. It could cost you your job. If you speak out against immorality, if you take a stand for what's true, you might lose a friend. You might have a family member who doesn't talk to you. Now, I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about taking theological hand grenades, pulling the pin and throwing them across the table at Christmas. I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying there's coming a point. That you're going to be called to make a stand. And you're going to find your world looking an awful lot like the world of John the Baptist in that moment. And for him, he said it was worth it. He said it was worth it to speak out against the people in power who are living lives that were immoral, that were wrong. To stand strong, to not shrink back. So that is Herod Antipas. The next, notice in his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Tronconitis. Because that was up in this area, Echeria, Tronconitis, right here. That's where he ruled. Now notice up in this area that we've got Caesarea Philippi. Well, maybe Herod the Great's son in this regard, Philip, maybe he's a better guy. He's lost his wife to his older brother. Maybe he would turn to God. No. Matter of fact, he built... Uh, Herod the Great had built a temple of Augustus in 20 BC, and it was in this area. When Philip came into power, he renamed it, and he renamed it Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it between the other Caesarea that was on the coast, in this area, Caesarea right here, but he wanted to distinguish it. But notice the last word, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. He named it after himself because he had an ego. Matter of fact, um, there was a temple there and the mouth of, uh, excuse me, the, there was a cave there. And in part of the cave, there was a mouth that they said were the commonly the gates of Hades. You might remember in Matthew 16, Jesus had visited here the disciples. And they said, who do the people say the son of man is? And they gave their different answers. And they were standing outside of this 80-foot rock with this cave in it. And at that time, there would have been a place for Augustus Caesar to be worshipped. There was a worship area for Pan. There was a temple there for Zeus. There were different courtyards in which immorality would take place, all part of pagan ritualism. And they'd be looking at this cave, and they'd be looking at this stone. And it was known to be this gates of Hades. And remember what Peter said. Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus replied, and on this rock, I will build my church. In other words, as they were looking at this mountain and they saw the paganism that was involved, that declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God will overcome all of this. The gates of Hades, that cave that was there cannot overcome the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as they come into a region that is filled with paganism, worship of Zeus, worship of Pan, the Greeks, the mythical. Jesus says, the thing that you are to worship is the Son of God, that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah sent from God. And no matter the potency of what paganism might seem like right now, the gates of Hades cannot overcome it. In other words, the gates that try to hold that message back will be thrown down under the weight and power of the fact that I am the Messiah, the Christ sent from God. You see, when you start seeing the history, the backdrop of this, you start realizing the potency that John the Baptist, when he came, he didn't come into a time that was settled and easy. He came into a time that was filled with paganism. It was filled with witchcraft, idolatry, immorality. Kind of like the time we live today. 
finishing up that time. It says Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene, lived up in this area or ruled up in this area. We don't know much about him. Damascus was his headquarters. We don't know much about him, but we know he was a son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. As we look at these snapshots of all of these individuals, next time we'll talk about Annas and Caiaphas. But that's the political landscape of what's going on. You're going to have a tendency over this next few weeks, holiday even, to think about how far this world has gone sideways. You probably think about it regularly. You're driving in traffic and people cut each other off. You're thinking, how can this world be like this? Why do people do stuff like this? Hear stories about people treating people badly, maybe at your work, maybe your relatives, maybe in your neighborhood. This is the kind of world that John the Baptist came into. This is the kind of world that the Christ came into. And during this Christmas season, I encourage you to meditate on the reality that God has brought you into this time for a specific reason. And that reason is just like John. John was born for the role that he played. John was born for the role he played. He was a messenger. You're a messenger too. He was unique to the ministry and life of Christ. You're unique to this time. So just as he was a messenger, so you are too. John was prepared for the hostility he encountered. He knew that people would not like this message. You need to remember that too. And as you see the world that he was brought into with all the drama, all the intrigue, all the immorality, all the evil, it's not going to be easy for you. But he was determined to take a stand. And while it cost him his life, His life was never really his to begin with. So as we think about this passage and move through the details, think about a great God who stands behind and there's a current of his story that is moving forward. Be encouraged to take a stand. You were born for this time and you need to expect opposition to the message. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and evaluate your heart before the Lord. Have you been living in light of what he has called you to and in the moment that we live? Before we say any more, I want the weight of John the Baptist and the world that he came into to to rest on you, that it wasn't easy and it's not easy for you. Ask God to strengthen you. If there's things that are brought up in your mind, repent of those things. Change your mind and ask God to help you stand against those. We'll give you a moment to speak to your Lord. Lord, we're grateful that we have the time, that we have the, the community that we have here at Grace Fellowship to look into these truths, to take these fine examinations so that our understanding, the framework in which we are to see John the Baptist coming and then you coming into this world, we find that it's not different than what we experience. It might have a different wrapper, but the package is the same. So we ask that, just as you emboldened 
John the Baptist for that moment, you'd embolden us. We ask that you would help us count the cost to not worry so much about what people think about us, even people in high places, but be concerned about what you know about us. Help us to stand strong, even if that means severing relationships, because you are worth it and you've called us to that. So we ask that you give us boldness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.